You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Podcasting is by Real Smart Media. Our podcasts are available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a keynote lecture from Exploring the Transnational Neighbourhood, Integration, Community and Cohabitation. This conference, which was supported by the UCD Humanities Institute, the Institute of Modern Language Research, School of Advanced Study at the University of London and the Cross Languages Dynamics Project, took place on the 25th and 26th of September 2019 at UCD Humanities Institute. The second keynote, Digital Cosmopolitanism, Local Networks, and Transnational Communities was given by Sandra Ponzanesi from Utrecht University. Thank you, Anne, and thanks to the wonderful team who is inviting me here. Um, Brita has been very patient with me with emails, but also Diara, Godela, Laura, and all the team has been putting so much work. I've learned a lot today. Um, I thought I was not the expert on neighbourhood, but the more I was thinking about it, the more I got inspired. And today he has confirmed many of my suspicions. So um, I hope I can speak to you about some of the things that I engage with, but also trying to create some threads uh, with what has been said. So among the other projects, one is the Connecting Europe, this ERC, but I have also another one of little babies everywhere. And this one is uh, founded by the Dutch Council and it's about post-colonial intellectuals in Europe. And two weeks ago, we organized uh, one of the many conferences because it's a transnational network, talking of transnationalism, in Münster um, on a specific aspect of the post-colonial intellectual in Europe, which was the focus on writers, uh, artists, and activists. And we invited um, a brilliant um, critic, um, who I didn't know before, called Johnny Pitts, to give the keynote. And it was very inspiring, so I would like to um, take him also as a kind of starting point for uh, this um, talk, because he published a few months ago uh, this book we call Afropean, Notes from Black Europe. <coughs> so he talked about also having been in Münster before, that's where we organized the conference, having landed on the B side, um, had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, apparently, this is an area in Münster where you have like a very kind of youth underground culture, which is kind of uh, alternative and uh, uh, resisting the corporate world. So you have this Münster, which is a kind of very traditional, very medieval, very classical, uh, middle-sized British uh, German town. And then you have this kind of B-side, which was kind of uh, subversive within the same city. So for those who are not familiar with uh, Johnny Pitts, let me introduce you um, briefly. He's a photographer. You can see this is his book, which is also narration and photography at the same time. He's also a writer and a broadcast journalist of mixed origin. He has an Afro-American father from New York who was a musician and an English mother. And he was born in the north of England, uh, in Sheffield where he grew up in a council estate um, in Firth Park. Therefore, indicating his bringing of marginality in a post-industrial city of the 1990s. 
He now lives in Marseille, in a neighborhood called Le Panier. And Le Panier is the, one of the oldest districts of Marseille and, Marseille, and is considered to be a kind of artist bulwark with small streets and lots of ateliers and art galleries where artists are at work. The streets are decorated with all kinds of street art and the multicultural buzz of the city is very palpable. In Le Panier, Johnny Pitts feels at home because Marseille is France, but not French, as much as Sheffield is Britain, but not English, and therefore separated from the reality of London and the cosmopolitan capital. Yet this north of England working class upbringing with friends from different ethnic backgrounds and going nowhere, at times flirting with crime and clashing with the police, was the fruitful ground for what he calls multiculturalism 2.0. This was his post-industrial Sheffield, post-Thatcher and post-minor strikes during the rise of Blair and the new labor fair way to globalization, where growing up was a struggle but also a tremendous opportunity. But now with Brexit looming, the growing polarization, the racism, the resurgence of white nationalism, the new labor dream seems to have failed. When Tony Blair got into power, Britain felt modern and multicultural it seems to have come to terms with its colonial history. But that was very cynical. It was the marketing and commodification of otherness which were feeding into the cultural industry of music and fashion without really dealing with the stru structural injustice and inequalities. So Johnny Pitt's idea of multiculturalism 2.0 is an attempt to recuperate from the ashes what was good about multiculturalism but now posited from below, coming from the people living in the condition of togetherness, rubbing difference against each other. Multiculturalism 2.0 is not a new wave of considering social media platform, as the term might uh, indicate, <laughs> but more a new way of seeing participation as a way of recovering a vision of the future, which comes from the past. What emerges here is the notion of a translocal as a way of connecting Europe and the multicultural complexities of Europe, not via the nation, not via the city, but via neighborhoods. Localized realities that transpire true cosmopolitan lifestyle based on gritty realities and closely knitted communities. Pitt starts a city-by-city city travelogue searching for Afropeans a term he has taken from David Byrne of the Zap Mama, the Belgian band. When Byrne was touring in Europe in the early 90s, he talked about seeing a new continent emerging in which a reverse colonialism was taking place, with black community exerting a strong influence on European culture. So that's Pete's, and I quote him, growing up in a council estate in Sheffield, I felt like I had a choice between two identities. A proud working class Sheffield identity, a kind of ghettoized black identity. It was either or. I couldn't be both. Afropean suggested I could be whole and unhyphenated. I could incorporate all these different things into my identity and in a way transcend them. It suggested the possibility of living in a with more than one idea. Africa and Europe, or by extension, the global South and the West, without being mixed this, half that, or black other. 
that being black in Europe didn't necessarily mean being an immigrant. In Marseille, it feels at home because despite its bad reputation, it is a vibrant place. I'm from Fear Park in Sheffield, he says, with its multicultural and working class, and I'm joking starting to call Marseille Fifth Park on Sea. <laughs> it's one of the few places in Europe where I found that the black community wasn't banished from the mainstream civic life. It started to look at the notion of black travel, what it might mean, and look for those black travel narratives that subverted that very specific white gaze. People like Langston Youth and Claude McKay, exponent of the Harlem Renaissance, McKay also wrote about Marseille, and Carol Phillips did travel, did what preceded him in traveling uh, blackness in Europe before. His search across Europe, this is the fifth part, his uh, search across Europe is inspired by his mentor, Carol Phillips, who in 1987 wrote The European Tribe. So just because I forgot to, this is the, uh, where the terms come from, was also used for, in Brussels for an exhibition which was called Afropolitan. And here you see a very famous photograph of a Senegalese photographer called Victor Omar Diop. It's very famous because he does this classical impersonation. So he's the one, he's an auto self-portrait, he's the one behind the camera as well. And he just dressed up and all the kind of heroic figure of uh, anti-colonial resistance uh, in various moments in history. So classical paintings that he redo with a lot of uh, football items. So he loved football, so he used footballs or gloves, as you can see, within this classical wearing. So that's Johnny Pitts. Um, the European Tribe, which was wrote 30 years before the Afropean, is a collection of chronicles by Carol Phillips through multiracial Europe of the 80s, guided by a moral compass rather than a map and seeking personal definition within the parameters of growing up black in Europe. Phillips discovered that the natural loneliness and confusion inherent in long journeys collide with the bigotry of the European tribe, a global community of whites caught up in an unyielding Eurocentric history. Phillips deftly illustrates the scene and characters and encounters from Casablanca, Costa do Sol, to Venice, Amsterdam, Oslo, and Moscow. He ultimately discovered that Europe is blinded by a past and does not understand the high price of our churches, our gallery, and history as the prison from which Europeans speak. Thirty years later, Pitts embarked on a similar journey. But what has changed in Europe? Whereas in the European tribe, Phillips reversed the usual narrative of the white explorer in the developing world by dissecting the Malays at the heart of Europe and treating white Europeans as anthropologically interesting, a kind of uh, Kurz uh, in the heart of darkness uh, reversion, Pitts focus, focuses on previously white spaces now occupied by black people. In his travel through Europe's neighborhood, Johnny Pitts wanted to connect the dots of what remains silent, unacknowledged, and marginalized in Europe. He wanted to recover, narrate, and fix in photograph and story the presence of black Europeans in their everydayness. By visiting different neighborhoods in different main cities, Paris, Brussels, Lisbon, Stockholm, Amsterdam, Moscow, 
The idea was to draw an alternative map of the continent, not presenting the classic trip advisor accounts, but taking the reader to places like Cova de Mura, the Cape Verdean shantytown on the outskirts of Lisbon, with its own underground economy, and Rikabi, the area of Stockholm that's 80% Muslim, or Clichy-sous-Bois in Paris, which we've been heard so much about this morning, which gave birth to the 2005 riots. Even visited the former Patrice Lumumba University in Moscow, where West African students are still making the most of the poor war ties with the USSR. And this is something that maybe I would like to discuss with Gillian because I think it's wrong. He said that uh, in Paris he learned what the word for suburb, balier, is. And I think he's got it wrong because I looked it up. And according to uh, Johnny Pitts, balier comes from the word banishment and lieu, place, place of banishment. He talks about um, this idea of uh, the 19th century having been redone by the ground project of Haussmann. But I think the origin, origin of Balier is a kind of medieval word for this kind of jurisdiction on the city head outside of the, of the walls. So even though they were like one league, that is a measure outside the wall, they still... Yeah. So they still fall under the same jurisdiction. Johnny Pitts had a bit romanticized idea of this punishment, but I thought it was interesting to cite what he has to say because he, this idea of refurbishing Paris to create a Paris with better sewage system and wider streets that could be patrolled and controlled to replace the steady revolution-friendly labyrinth that the city had become. Aside from the newer street being easier to police, the poor and unwanted were all driven further out of the center of Paris because of the higher rents the new luxurious townhouses commanded. It was the era that gave birth to the Paris we all love and know. Beyond the periphery, the banished one still resides. Now, often immigrants from Western North Africa, as well as Roma traveling community, are cut off from the center of the city geographically and imaginative. So I think even though the word is misinterpreted, the concept remains. So Napoleon and Asman may have pushed the poor out, but it was another legendary architect, Le Courbassier, who, in contrast to the extravagant houseman, created a template for the concrete tower blocks that are home to such social unrest today. Yet despite these stereotypical notions of poverty and disenfranchisement, Pitts was not interested in photographing the image of blackness as often fixed by the white gaze, as he was looking for banal situation of everydayness. He declared that he wasn't looking for black people struggling, celebrating, or fighting. He didn't want protests, he didn't want carnivals, just the everydayness of black experience. A lot of the photography in the book showed people just commuted, as you can see here, and just being, all the while presenting Afropean as lead actors in their own story. And I think the graffiti is part of this uh, reappropriation, a resignification of the black experience. The idea of the travel through Europe and the book plus photograph was to create a situation where black communities of Europe were speaking to each other. To see how black communities as translocal should become translo or should become translocal in order to support each other. The survival of the Bioman ramp in Amsterdam in 1992 would have much to talk about the survival of the Greenfeld Tower of 2007. These are communities that are dealing with the legacy of racism and prejudice and the legacy of colonialism and are influenced by American racial politics. 
So it seemed to me, and I quote him, that I had to make this narrative that would help this black community somehow to connect without shoehorning people, people together. He also said that black experience couldn't be pinned down to a solid thing. As he traveled, he met Tunisian, who had a real problem with Somali in Sweden, or Martinicans, who looked down the nose in Senegalese in France. No matter how much he tried to fit it all together, it never fitted perfectly. Yet, at the same time, there's a lot of opportunity for black community to come together, and lots of instances where they did not. It's a continent full of opportunities, or communalities, or possible solidarities, but ultimately, what he found empowering was knowing that the continent was so filled of people that looked like him. It was important, therefore, to recover the story that had been pushed at the periphery and they were not part of the national narrative. So what is inspirational about this intellectual journey is not only how to bring together the black experience across Europe by connecting the everyday life of neighborhoods, b-sides and suburbs, drafting a new map of Europe and of civic engagement, but also to see how the neighborhood as a base for community life, where identity can be forged across national and transnational belonging, emerges across Europe. This translocal element is essential to cosmopolitanism, a notion that has a long history but needs to be requalified for contemporary times. So allow me for a detour on cosmopolitanism as a traveling concept, as it is essential for the Afropean or cosmopolitans from below, but also to understand this notion of the neighborhood as potential cosmopolitan hub. The notion of cosmopolitanism is often used to convey the crossing of borders and the abolition of national frontiers. Yet the recent resurgence of ethno-nationalism and xenophobia testify to a term which is not only under pressure but also needs to be requalified in order to have any use. To talk of cosmopolitanism means in fact to open the Pandora box because since its inception in Greek times the definition of cosmopolitan from the word cosmopolis, citizen of the world, has been subject to many development, contestation and querelle. For Anthony Appiah, which is one of the major figures, as we mentioned before this morning, by uh, uh, you, I think, yeah. Cosmopolitanism has two essential qualities. One, it shows an interest in the belief and practices of others, people that are unlike us, striving to understand and bridge, if not adopt, other ways of being and worldviews. But also, it entails an obligation to help people who are not like us alleviating the suffering and offering assistance in case of need. That's the sense of solidarity. The cosmopolitanism as a way of thinking, feeling, and acting beyond the nation has been seen as a universalism as a Western concept. It had often been linked to elite and privileged mobility, a refined and noble concept that could only be experienced and practiced by those who, through education or financial means, could afford to cross borders, language, and political systems. So it's a Kant, it's a kind of enlightenment concept. Therefore, many critics have focused more recently on a critique of the Eurocentric bias of cosmopolitanism, debating how most cosmopolitan formations derive from coercion or inequality, such as slavery, colonization, and imperialism. So the question is whether it is possible to have it both ways. A cosmopolitanism with promise of universal knowledge, justice, and peace, 
that also foreground a non-coercive egalitarian politics with respect for difference and locality. Positive in this way, cosmopolitanism emerges not as a normative concept, but as an aspirational idea, something we should strive for in order to bring about a more equal and just world. James Clifford has written, has written that instead of renouncing cosmopolitanism as a false university, one can embrace it as an impulse to knowledge that is shared with others, a striving to transcend partiality that itself partial, but no more so than similar cognitive striving of many diverse people. So instead of thinking of cosmopolitanism as a liberal safari, just embrace the potentiality that cosmopolitanism has to be rooted, as I mentioned before, to be diverse. So in the introduction to the special issue of public culture, which is a fam very famous special issue on the notion of cosmopolitanism, get studied by Pollock, Beckenbridge, Onibaba, and Chakrabarti, they try to sabotage the classical notion of cosmopolitanism uh, by saying that cosmopolitanism today are, of, are often, cosmopolitan today are often the victims of modernity, failed by capitalism upward mobility, and bereft of those comforts and customs of national belonging. So cosmopolitan now, are, we should consider them to be the refugees, people of the diaspora and migrants and exile, who represent the spirit of the cosmopolitan community. Cosmopolitanism became in this way pluralized and recuperated as cosmopolitanisms by opening up to other forms of cosmopolitanism that have not been taken into consideration because they were left in the margin of history and therefore reduced to unauthorized form of cosmopolitanism. But this unauthorized form of cosmopolitanism from below give way to a plurality of modes in history, national and international. So they say, we propose therefore that cosmopolitanism be considered in the plural as cosmopolitanism. This allows for a new array of possibility to emerge that escape the constraint of the Western imperialistic paradigm and offer a new way of reviving an obsolete and ossified notion. An example is Gilroy's notion of conviviality that I'm sure you all know, inspired by the Spanish notion of cohabitation, which is one of the terms that you use for this conference. Cohabitation, convivencia, also refer to this idea of coexisting peacefully and culturally, which was based on the period of Moorish culture in Spain, which is considered ex exemplary for its multiculturalism and religious tolerance. In this example, multiculturalism is not a top-down form of governmental policy, but a bottom-up form of societal engagement with the other, where difference and mutual understanding are grafted onto the texture of everyday life. Convivencia, I cannot pronounce this, sorry, Spanish, convivencia, a shared life includes an emphasis on practice, effort, negotiation, and achievement. This sense of rubbing along includes just not happy togetherness, as the word conviviality in English will suggest, but negotiation, friction, and sometimes conflict. So this is the Marseille of Johnny Pitts. You know, this is beautiful, this is cohabitation, this is coexistence, but it's also conflict and tension. It is important to focus on the definition of cosmopolitanism from below, from the, pure, from the point of view of migrants and refugees who are not choosing cosmopolitanism as a badge of honor, but who engage practically and concretely in cosmopolitan practices on an everyday basis. 
Those are subject on the move or for better or for worse, come into close contact with other culture, ethnicity and regime of sovereignties. As such, they contribute to a radical revision not only of the notion of citizenship and belonging, but also of nations and network. In his chapter on a cosmopolitanism of connection, sorry, that was on, Craig Calhoun talks about globalization as being about different patterns of interconnections. Electronic media, and I'm happy that the session before mentioned it, brought it up as a connection, allow us to transcend distance, meaning that no nation stand alone. But as Calhoun so famously writes, although we are growing more connected, the patterns of our connection are varied and incomplete, not universal. It reminds us that we engage the larger world through our specific localities, nations, religions, and culture, not by escaping them. So even though cosmopolitanism is often seen as a style, as a form of consumption, cosmopolitanism is also about material conditions that are unevenly distributed. In short, Calum reminds us cosmopolitanism is not equally available to everyone. Calum concludes therefore that we are connected but incompletely. We have responsibility because of our connection, a little bit of like happier, but we are affected by and affect others not just because of abstract similarities. And within this constellation, migrants emerge as the real cosmopolitan because they embody the imperfection of cosmopolitanism while continuing to practice its aspiration of politics. It's a bit of a long quote, sorry. Migrants are agents of interconnection in a global world and source of multicultural diversity in society that cannot readily understand themselves as homogeneous, even if some of the members or the governments want to. They are often cosmopolitan in the sense of having loyalties and connection to cross-national borders. But for globalization is not the abstract universalism of cosmopolitan theory. It is not that globalization is only for the rich or powerful or privileged. Rather, it is experienced very differently with different resources. Of course, globalization affects also those who do not travel or travel far, and we need to ask what responsibility educated cosmopolitan have towards them. According to this notion, cosmopolitanism is not just about the space beyond the nation, but about a form of connection that are mutable and hypertextual. So cosmopolitanism needs to be explored in terms of webs of specific connection that position us in the world. From friendship and kinship for national state and religion to market and global institution, these are not just nested of different scales. They cross-cut each other, and it is good that they do so for difference on one dimension are met by connection on another. So this idea of cosmopolitanism, not as territorial, but as linked to different scale and ranges of connectivity is very useful and fits the needs of a time in which different form of migration, different form of digitality, and different form of cosmopolitan everydayness do indeed cross and stumble upon each other. So following Calhoun, connectivity emerges as an essential trait of cosmopolitanism in a digital age. So I'm now turning into the digital part. In media and communication studies, connectivity refers to relation enabled via digital media technologies. Virtual expression of critical cosmopolitanism now take place through technologically mediated networks that allow the exchange of symbols, idea, and communication across the internet. 
According to Oliver Hall, the prospect for a virtual cosmopolitanism are contingent upon the socio-technological capabilities of the internet to not just mediate, but reciprocate and bridge cross-cultural connections, ties and network within and across national boundaries. Critics of the internet have seen the virtual as inauthentic and corroding, fragmenting and displacing the social capital based on real and authentic form of face-to-face -face interactions. The effective and collective acts by social capital are seen as being replaced by a more ephemeral, individualized, leisure-related usage of the internet to the detriment of the thick bonds with friends, neighbors, and relatives. This negative understanding of virtual cosmopolitanism creates an erroneous dichotomy between the virtual and the real by romanticizing contiguous face-to-face -face relation in contrast to the inauthentic, simulated, and hyperreal. However, as Volgar described, mediated sociality suggests the virtual to be every part of the real, not set against or replacing it, but supplementing, if not enhancing, the social. Virtual communities are like cosmopolitans based on broader, diffuse, and plural network. This weather network allows the advancement of intercultural communication and the broadening of worldviews, with more heterogeneous idea and sense of belonging to the world beyond the local. This leads to the idea of imagining community envisioned by Benedict Anderson, which are based not on face-to-face -face relation, but on modern sense of belonging to the same community by the style in which they are imagined. But this virtual engagement can also lead to encapsulation instead of cosmopolitanism, based on the idea of a homophily, love of the same, the assumption the birds of a feather flock together. Therefore, rather than enhancing transnational communication and cosmopolitanism, digital communication encourages ethnic encapsulation and segregation. As Zuckerman writes in Digital Cosmopolitan, the digital flow of interaction and ideas can potentially create and promote diverse network across culture and many groups. But what happens in practice is that the information flow remains within the border, homogeneous, and local networks of one's own environment. Network exchanges and interaction tend to consolidate around shared identity and preferences that are marked by commonalities of ethnicity, gender, nationality, age, social class, religion, and so forth. So according to Zuckerman, the internet does not only create an imaginary cosmopolitanism whose intersections are mostly with people with a similar point of view and share many commonalities. Zuckerman called for a revaluation of what it means to be true cosmopolitan in the age of the internet. His conclusion is that it is simply not enough to use social media and have access to global flow of information. The essence of cosmopolitanism remains the aspiration and capacity to encounter the other and discuss, share beliefs, views, and ideas that might be different from ours, while maintaining the capacity to empathize with another's point of view, as illustrated by Hapia. Therefore, virtual communities do not automatically produce a cosmopolitan openness, but also lead to enclavization or cyber balkanization, where similarity of beliefs, opinion, taste, and interests become divisive. They can also lead to a polarization through extreme ideologies shared online, such as anti-cosmopolitan movement or right-wing, xenophobic, nationalist, white supremacist, or terrorist network that promotes division and intolerance rather than communal and cosmopolitan values.
Yet, as Oliver All argues, even though homophilic networks tend to be formed around common interests, belief, and orientation, they can still cut across a wide spectrum of experiences and horizons, intersecting with various categories of identity such as gender, race, and ethnicity, sexuality, and religion. Therefore, besides bonding with one's ethnic group, digital online activity can also lead to bridging, connecting with other groups like us, and therefore enable a cosmopolitan disposition, which is a useful word to avoid kind of essentialism of cosmopolitanism. So to go back, when talking to Johnny Pitts about the importance of digital technology from the for the new form of multiculturalism 2.0, he advocated for digital minimalism. The idea that we should limit our presence and dependence from social media not only to define us, but also to resist a neoliberal model that dominates our life through commerce, through surveillance, and through technology. This could be a rather critical but also elitist position towards technology and the power we could have to switch on and off when we feel like it. So now we have like resource where you have the so-called white zone when there is no Wi-Fi or internet as a luxury uh, position. Yet as we discussed, the digital is not separated from the offline and the everyday intersection happening in multiple ways, allowing for communities and neighborhoods to stay in touch and, and socialize differently. So instead of fearing the digital as something that will disturb the face-to-face -face relation and fictize that are essential for conviviality or the convivencia of Piroi, the digital is often already part of the tightly knit conviviality and often also indispensable tool for survival. Recent cases of migration to Europe, for example, have shown the smartphone and digital connectivity are not only the privilege of the happy few, but easily accessible and affordable affordable tools whose widespread use has changed not only the nature of migration, but also the sense of identity and belonging. We are talking today not of the disenfranchised, but of the connected migrant, a new citizen of the world who is both rooted and rooted, with the two different spelling, and whose global intersection are marked by the use of digital network. Digital technology have now have not revolutionized the life of migrants in the neighborhood, but are certainly deeply impacting on the level of interconnection, facilitating, accelerating, and reorganizing the spatial temporal order. So neighborhoods are lived, but they are also transnationally mediated. Media practices destabilize the binary between the local and the translocal, between community and infrastructure, between top-down governmentality and bottom-up rights to the city. So if media often separate, separate urban dwellers and face-to-face -face communication, it also offers other momentary but important association. In his latest book, The Digital Street, from 2019, Jeffrey Lane argued that it's simply no longer possible to understand coming of age in the inner city without an appreciation of both face-to-face -face and online relations, the structure neighborhood life. The digital street refers to the ways in which social media is changing the life in the neighborhood community, and in particular in poor minority communities. He did ethnographic work in Harlem, studying the life of young uh, girls and boys, and the way in which uh, the new kind of social platform helped them to um, navigate their existence. 
The digital street reveals not only the risk you face through surveillance or worsening violence, but also the opportunity digital social media use provide for mitigating danger. Grant access to this new world definitely shows how all problems of living through poverty, especially gangs and violence, are experienced differently for the first generation of teenagers coming of age in the digital street. So we can conclude that face-to-face -face communication does more than just reproduce familiarity, existing network, and community connection. It enables effective links across the dispersed history and diverging connection of urban dwellers. Face-to-face -face communication in the city always coexists with a rich and fragmented universe of mediated communication. Increasingly, alongside national and transnational mass media, hyperlocal media and social media and ethnic media call for the attention of urban dwellers. This range of media and their convergence and divergence have become platform for multiple and contradictory claims to community, togetherness and separation. In positive or negative ways, different modes of communication constantly expose the urban dweller to difference and its diverting claim to belonging. So diversity, multiculturalism and cosmopolitanism are often mentioned as the best qualities of successful neighborhood and raise concern about the possibility of some group losing their right to the city as a result of rising house prices and gentrification. So in coming to my conclusion, the intersection between the technological innovation and migration have provided new challenges and opportunity to resignify the notion of the cosmopolitanism in a digital age, but also to resignify relations across neighborhoods, cities, and nations. In my study on digital diaspora, and this is the ERC project which has been mentioned before, which focuses, focuses on migrant women and their digital practice in European main cities, the struggle of our identities happen in everyday life in the neighborhood. This is our specific understanding of the local urban space. In continuum with different national and social concepts, demonstrate everyday experience of such a reality and, I quote, stretch beyond its borders while still remaining situated in the local. This complements a padurized notion of translocality that reconcile our locally situated community, such as in neighborhoods, become extended via the mobility of its migrant inhabitants who move across and beyond the nations. In this context, by taking the local as a point of departure, translocality allows us to see a local, national, and transnational scale intertwined in shaping social, spatial processes and practices. Thus, while performing the daily tasks, these migrant women that we work on such as dropping kids to school, doing grocery or visiting neighbors, migrant women establish a routine of mediated co-presence, which is a term that comes from Adenauer and Miller, by showing their surrounding to the loved one back home. Thus, it is not worthy to emphasize at the level the micro-local is important, an important element that influences even determine the mediated sociality of connected families. In this context, translocality once again emerging as an important analytical layer that enables us to understand the importance of the local for migrants who heavily rely on communication technology to pursue familiar relationship across transnational distance. Similarly, the centrality of the nation challenges us to understand their identity within a cosmopolitan outlook since it reveals our multi-spatial belonging in its symbolic, imagined, and lived form 
take place at the intersection of the local, the national, and the transnational. The reflexivity and positioning challenges the notion that cosmopolitanism is a static and fixed criterion. On the contrary, cosmopolitanism is brought to life through imaginative and tactical physical engagement with the outside world that allow for a positioning in a multicultural contest and formulating multilayer identity informed by multiple attachments. So this is more or less what, with different theoretical framework, uh, Johnny Pitts was trying to argue, and therefore I would like to close with his own words, which I found quite striking. I would like to conclude with Johnny Pitt's word as his notion of the Afropean that I introduced at the beginning resonates with many of the challenges of finding beauty in the local and setting up the world for the translocal. Cosmopolitanism is not enough, but we must never let go of its potentiality and aspiration, especially if requalified from below and through digital network that allow for new form of co-presence and belonging. So I'm quoting Johnny Pitts now as a conclusion. The multicultural makeup of Fifth Park, where I grew up, comprised not only a working class community, but established Yemeni, Jamaican, Pakistani, and Indian communities, and later, more recent economic migrants and political refugees from Syria, Albania, Kosovo, and Somalia. My childhood bedroom has, over the year, been like a VIP box for street opera. From it, I watch everything from Diwali and Eidi celebration to reggae parties, joyriding, gangland shooting, rap battles. Yemeni weddings, and wherever so often, Prince Nassim Habed's red Ferrari parking up next door. A neighbor Mohammed was a relative. It was not a multicultural utopia in the conventional sense, but it was alive and convivial, entrepreneurial and dynamic build upon the tolerant atmosphere that comes with sharing a space dealing with other people with diverse belief and culture. Thank you.